This is the Hacker Valley Studio Podcast, exploring the human element behind cybersecurity programs and technology. How's it going, everyone? In this episode, we have Christopher Budd. He's an expert in crisis communication, and we go on to exactly what does that mean? And how does an organization use crisis communication to talk about the things that are really tough to talk about? And also, is there traits that apply to people that are really good at crisis communication? We dive into this and more. Be sure to check it out. And if you like this episode, check out more episodes at hackervalley.studio. And as always, please support us at our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash hackervalleystudio. Let's get right to it. What's going on, everybody? You are in the Hacker Valley studio with your hosts, Ron and Chris. Yes, sir. Welcome back to the show. Glad to be back here again, still in the virtual studio, but we have a special guest with us today. We have Christopher Budd. He is a security and privacy expert in communications and incident management, and you're also a author. You publish a lot of content I'm excited to learn more about your background, but most importantly, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. Thanks for having me, both of you. How are you both today? Doing pretty well. Doing pretty well. Christopher, you know, it's so amazing to hear about your background and the things that you do. I'm sure during, you know, all of this COVID crisis stuff, people were probably hitting you up, family members, colleagues, because like, how do we communicate this stuff to, to our people? But for those of you that don't know you yet, Could you give us a little bit of background and uh, what you're doing today? Sure. So I spent uh, 10 years with the Microsoft Security Response Center, better known as the MSRC. I'm one of the the longtime serving members of that. Um, I helped build uh, Patch Tuesday, which everyone knows and loathes. I also helped build the security and privacy instant response processes that Microsoft uses today. I spent a number of years as the communications lead for that. Since then, I've been working in the industry with uh, security and technology companies, sometimes full-time, sometimes as a consultant, helping them to build instant response processes, also helping to uh, translate security and privacy concepts for a variety of audiences. And if I can sum up what it is I do best, I always say I take awful news and make it just bad. I think that's such an awesome tagline. Where did that come from? How did you start to cultivate this ability to communicate crises uh, effectively? Uh, Where did that all come from? Sure. So the tagline, believe it or not, true story, the tagline came, I was, when I was at Microsoft, we had just gone through a reorg, you know, because Microsoft does reorgs every six months. And we had (laughs) gathered the extended reorg org together and uh, we were going around introducing ourselves you know people are saying i do this i do this they come to me and just off the top of my head i said i'm christopher budd i take awful news and make it just bad and that seemed to sum it up and i've held on to it ever since basically how i came into it was kind of sideways so i'm a rare bird i've got a full technical background i actually used to run networks in my in my technical heyday i had 30 some vendor certifications I've built servers, I've done help desk, I've done development. I was in the response center in the early days when we did everything. You know, we didn't really have specialization. And 
I found that I had an affinity for the communication side of things. So I started following that. And eventually I found myself guiding the communication strategy from Microsoft through some of the some of the more challenging situations. So, you know, it was a combination of luck and innate ability, I guess. So to take awful news and just make it bad, I would love to have some context as to what's a piece of awful news that you've received and kind of how did you frame it to make it not so bad? That's a great question. And and that gets to kind of the, the key of the discipline. So one thing I've said, because, you know, I talk with people on the PR and communication side of the house. I talk and work with people on the technical side of the house. I always tell my colleagues on the PR and communication side of the house that what I do is through the looking glass for what most of them do. And here's what I mean by that. Everything that is right in my world is wrong in their world. Everything that's right in their world is wrong in my world. Now, to bring this back to your question, you know, to kind of make this concrete, part of taking awful news and making it just bad is step one, you be upfront about things being bad. Very often, people in crises will want to try and minimize it. It's understandable. You know, who wants to go out and fess up? Yeah, I broke, you know, sorry, Chris, I broke your favorite vase. I mean, it's human nature to want to suppress or depress bad news. But when you're managing a crisis from a communications point of view, you actually want to lead with the truth. You want to lead with the bad news because that gets you credibility. That credibility on the opening you can then use on that crucial next step, which is, as I always say, you say, here's this thing, here's how it's bad, but here's why it may not be as bad as you think it might be. Because one thing, you know, and we see this happening today, one thing in a crisis is people project their worst fears into blank spaces. And so when you're managing crises and you're delivering bad news, you're actually dealing not just with the thing itself, but you're dealing with people's fears and their projections, which, you know, nine times out of 10, unless you're really creative, and I can be really creative, but nine times out of 10, people's worst fears and projections are actually worse than the thing that you're dealing with. And so you go out, you say, here's this thing. Yes, it's bad. Here are the factual reasons why it may not be as bad as you think it might be. That does two things for you. It, it takes the issue and boxes it in so that it is not as, as bad as people are blowing it up to be in their minds. You also establish your authority and your credibility. And those two pieces are absolutely crucial when we're talking about managing crises and crisis communications, because this is another thing that you find all the time in crises, which is... There are always third parties that are more than happy to jump into that blank space and try to tell people why it's even worse than they might think it is. You know, sometimes they do it with good intentions. Sometimes they do it with not so good intentions. But if you establish your authority and your credibility at the very beginning, then that I, I refer to it as you're walking up, you're grabbing the mic and you're taking command of that mic and you don't let go. And that's a key principle in managing these situations. Yeah, that's fantastic. One thing that makes me think about is that let's say there's two scenarios, right? In scenario one, 
everyone is at a 10. Everyone thinks, oh my goodness, this is the worst possible thing. But the actual communicator knows it's about a six. Mm -hmm. But what happens when you're the communicator and you, along with everyone else, think it's a 10? How do you manage your personal emotions to de-escalate the emotions of others? That's a really good question insofar as this gets to something that I've seen in the crisis space, which is part of that depends on temperament and personality. I've said in security and especially in crisis response, we tend to draw heavily in terms of personnel. We tend to draw heavily from people that have service backgrounds, you know, whether it's whether it's police, fire, intelligence, military. I don't have a service background per se. I did have a stint where I tried out to be a volunteer firefighter, which is is a whole other story. But I've done hiring and personnel over the years. And kind of to your point, one of the key things is people are just temperamentally able to slip into the zone, stay focused on what needs to be done. And then if they are going to have an emotional response, it will happen afterwards. Um, I, w- I often cite, there's a writer that I love named uh, Robert D. Kaplan, who writes about current events. Basically, he would travel to, to places like the Balkans, uh, Cambodia, all these places with difficult histories. He would travel there, write about what he saw, bring in some history, and provide some really solid analysis. In 2006, Robert Kaplan was an embedded reporter with the U.S. Marines in Fallujah in Iraq. Now, in 2006, Fallujah was was a major hotspot in terms of insurgency. Like I said, he was embedded in the Marines. He wrote about this in The Atlantic and Getting back to this point of temperament and calling, he tells this story in his article about being on patrol with the Marines when all of a sudden they start hearing shots. Now, Kaplan had served in the Israeli army for a couple of years. He's been in war zones, but he writes, his first response was to drop and run away from the shooting. He looks at the Marines that he's embedded with. Their first response was to run towards the shooting. And that gets to some of that character and temperament. The people that are drawn to crisis response and do well with it were people that run towards the gunshots. Well, mm. that's that's very powerful story and also kind of call to action for, for those that are, you know, in that situation that can respond. What kind of people have you worked with? What kind of personalities do you find most in incident response, crisis management? Uh, what kind of people you work with the most? Um, like I said, we, we get a lot of people with military and intelligence, uh, public service backgrounds. You know, a key thing, like I said, is temperament. It's, it's the ability to, to compartmentalize, the ability to stay focused on the facts, on what needs to be done. Frankly, a certain amount of unsentimentality. And what I mean by that is you know, the ability to look at things and and not get emotionally overwhelmed at the time. Most of all, and I've said this many times when I've interviewed people or talked about this, most of all, there's, you know, we hear people talking about police, military as a calling, right? You know, that, that, that people have just a calling to do it. And there is a calling in crisis response, 
the best people, the people that survive the longest, the people that that even thrive are people that have some inner calling to do it. When I interview people, generally, historically, when I be on interview loops, I would be tasked with with two things, you know, and like at Microsoft, you know, Microsoft used to be known for, you know, for rigorous and difficult interview loops. These days, I think I think Google and Amazon may may kind of eclipse Microsoft in the stories. But back in the day, Microsoft was the was the difficult one in terms of interviews, you know, and you would do a full day of interviews with like six people, you know, from start to finish. And my job would be to focus on two things. The first is is temperament to see if it's someone that has that that internal calling. And the second would be, frankly, to try and scare them. Because one thing that you find is that the wrong in this space, the wrong person is worse than no person at all. You know, I'm going to use a combat metaphor. The wrong person becomes essentially a body that you have to carry while you're still doing their job. You know, if, if the role is open, then at least you're not carrying that person. You know, temperament and that calling is important because this is hard work. I mean, this is absolutely some of the hardest work ever. And one of the things that, that I found over the years that make it hard isn't dealing with the bad guys, isn't dealing with the attackers that are trying to cause havoc. The hardest part is dealing with the people that you are doing it for, not understanding what you're doing, not appreciating what you're doing, and worst of all, armchair quarterbacking and criticizing what you're doing. You know, those are your hardest days. If you don't have some kind of internal drive that gets you up and drives you in that you can draw from during those hard days, this will crush you. Yeah. I mean, you're speaking my language. Uh, I spent five years in the United States Marine Corps oh. and definitely, definitely can, you know, relate to a lot of the things that you're you're mentioning. One thing we learned in the military is sort of how to, to convey news, right? Mm-hmm. You uh, tell them what you're going to tell them, you tell them, you tell them what you told them, and then you give them a call to action. Mm-hmm. Do you have a similar recipe for communicating a crisis? Sure. So first of all, thank you for your service. My father was a Marine also. so Outstanding. Super um, fi. Uh, indeed. Indeed. So one of the things that I tell people is, you know, so let's go back to that, to what I was saying as far as when you're dealing with bad news, you're dealing with people's expectations and you're dealing with people's projections. So when dealing with difficult communications, one of the first things I counsel people to think about is to try and try and prevent people from from freaking out initially. So here's what I mean. A couple of weeks ago, I uh, tripped and sprained my ankle really badly. And so I, I was calling to tell someone because I live alone. And I said, first thing I said is, I'm okay, but I fell and etc. So what I did there was I, I, I opened with something to kind of tamper down the freak out before delivering the bad news. I saw an excellent example of this not at work. Do you ever watch Deadliest Catch? Yes. So a few years ago, Captain Keith, I remember I was watching, Captain Keith was on his boat and he was waiting to hear from his doctor because he was getting tests. The doctor called him and they show it on camera. And the doctor starts by relaying all of this 
really com- mind-numbingly complex medical information. And he's just going on and on for like two minutes. And then finally he says, but we don't think it's cancer. So I always tell people, you know, think of the freak out as kind of a graph, you know, and because the way we communicate, we process information in serial fashion. You know, we process it one piece at a time. That doctor failed to communicate the news. In this case, it was good news, but failed to communicate news effectively because he created this two to three minute window where he didn't temper the potential downside at the beginning, provide a lot of information that, that frankly, he didn't, the patient didn't need to hear. And so created a two minute window where the, where Captain Keith can sit there and erroneously believe, oh God, it's cancer, you know? And so if you, if you chart it, you know, the, you would have the freak out at the beginning and then it kind of comes down, you know, we're these days with COVID, we're all talking about graphs and curves when you're talking about bad news, you want that graph to be as flat as possible throughout. Mm, that's a good point. Right. Delivery is always key. And sounds like that was a little bit of a, a rough one. One of the things that you just kind of made me think about was kind of what we're going through with COVID, kind of working from home more, mm-hmm. switching to different types of tools. What is your take on privacy and communication uh, kind of in the world that we're living in today? and potentially what we're going to in the future. So I think if I can take privacy first, I think we are entering a very interesting time in terms of privacy because, you know, there's privacy. I mean, security is a balancing act. So is privacy. Privacy is a balancing act between what you want to keep to yourself and what needs to be known, you know, for the greater good. I have a privacy as well as a security background. And I think one thing that we are going to see is, I mean, let me restate this. One thing I hope we see is an intelligent conversation about what what the right balance and trade-offs are. Now, in the United States, we are used to thinking about privacy as something that, that is not protected and constantly violated because of many reasons, not least of which is we don't have comprehensive privacy legislation in this country. And so we tend to think of privacy as an issue where we have to fight to retain it. And the imbalance around privacy is always towards not enough. And that makes sense. But there can be too much privacy. And here's an example of, of too much privacy. So a number of years ago, there was an airline crash in Spain, I believe it was. It was a German airliner. They eventually determined that the plane crashed because the pilot crashed the plane intentionally. It was a German pilot. And they later determined that the German pilot had mental health issues. The airline never knew about those medical conditions because of the strict German privacy laws. And so there was never any ability for anyone to say, you know, gee, should this guy be flying a plane? And in that particular instance, I think at this point, we would agree the answer would be no. But that's an example of where privacy protection can potentially, from a societal point of view, be too strict. So with tracing apps, with with all that's going on with COVID, I mean, there are definitely some important questions that need to be raised around how much of my privacy should I have? How much 
privacy should I be giving up for the greater good in this pandemic? Mind you, I don't have an answer to that. I have my own feelings. One thing I've always said is I reserve the right to completely change my mind based on new data. I think there's, there are a lot of questions that need to be addressed around privacy around this. You know, to kind of pivot, I mean, another thing that I've said that I think is really interesting about what's going on is how much the internet and how much technology has actually saved us. You know, now I'm going to preface this by, by being really clear, you know, the people, the first responders, the people in the hospitals, the doctors, the nurses, the EMTs who are literally putting their lives and in many cases dying are the genuine heroes here. So I don't want anything I say to sound like I'm detracting from that. I also think there is a huge story that hasn't been told around the fact that the world of technology has enabled as much of the as much of the world economy to function as it has. If this had happened 20 years ago when there was no internet, 30 years ago, there would be no economy at all. There would be no Grubhub, there would be no working from home, there would be nothing. The other part of this that I think is really interesting is Netflix hasn't gone down. Amazon hasn't gone down. Zoom hasn't gone down. I mean, they've been hacked a few times. Uh, there, so, yes, there are some security issues that have come up. But, <laughs> you know, but let's come back to security as a balancing act. Zoom also finds itself, you know, I've said Zoom has become a Microsoft overnight in terms of in terms of its centrality and importance. You know, they're just they're they're facing threat models and usage scenarios that six months ago they weren't. The fact is we have moved so much online in such a short period of time and we haven't had outages. The capacity adaptation that the technology industry has shown here is incredible. If you told me a year ago this would happen and things would be up and running and stable in the way that they are, I'm not sure that I would believe it. One thing I wanted to bring up that you mentioned a little while ago is being in a state of flow when you're handling a crisis. Mm -hmm. Ron and I are big proponents of flow and getting into flow, getting into that flow state. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you personally get into your flow state and how would you recommend for others to get there as well, especially in a crisis? I'm going to be honest and say, I don't know how I get into the flow state. It just happens. I think some of that comes to temperament. You know, one thing that I've said is in crisis management, the ability to improvise is absolutely key. There's the old axiom that no battle plan survives first contact with the enemy. And I can tell you, I used to be a planner. You know, before I did a lot of crisis response, I used to be a planner. And we would do plans sometimes when we, when we knew something might happen. Here's what I found every time would happen when we would have a plan for something. We would do up the plan, the thing would, would happen, and the event would unfold with, you know, with something coming out of right field that we couldn't have predicted, and the plan becomes useless. Now, Churchill once said, plans are useless, but planning is essential. And I agree with that because the act of planning helps you identify what resources you have. It helps you kind of identify what steps you might take, but adhering to a plan is deadly in a crisis. So back to your question, part of getting into the flow, I think, is acquiring a comfort with improvisation. I'll also say, I think we should be teaching kids in school 
not just how to plan. We teach them how to plan all the time in terms of homework and everything, but we should also be teaching them improvisation because it's a good life skill. What we're going through right now is an example of where improvisation skills are necessary. No one could have predicted what has been happening. No one can predict what things will look like six months from now. And if you're a planner and you don't have the ability to improvise, you're going to be suffering in this. You know, the, the people that will, I'm going to be, I guess, a little Darwinian here, the people that will thrive in this all are the ones that adapt and improvise. That's very true. I think that especially when it comes to crisis management and any type of incident response, you have to be creative, you have to improvise, you have to produce you know, out of all the skills required, what is something that you really lean on that's not related to technology, that's not related to cyber? Is it your planning skills or is it something else that you also lean on heavily when thinking about crisis and responding to them? You know, again, I think I'm, I'm, I'm going to come back to, to what I was saying earlier as far as that internal calling. What I have leaned on is, is a fundamental belief in calling in terms of helping keep people safe, and helping to make the world a better place. You know, yes, that can sound kind of Boy Scout-ish and kind of hokey. I mentioned my father was a Marine. You know, we talk about how service tends to run in families, right? I had a moment of epiphany a number of years ago when I was in the midst of some crisis. I was sitting in my office at Microsoft. I was exhausted. I had the tar beat out of me because it was just so stressful. And I had this epiphany where something in my head went off and said, you know, this may be how that legacy of a calling that your father had is manifesting in you. You know, like I said, I mean, for me, there is a, a true desire to do good, to keep people safe. When I was at Microsoft, my personal passion, my personal focus was first and foremost on keeping people safe. When I interviewed to start working in the response center, a guy named Steve Lipner, who's fairly prominent in, in the security community, he ran the response center in those days. And I remember him asking me in my interview, he said, so the response center has two jobs, to protect the Microsoft brand and, and to protect customers. You know, those can be at odds. How do you resolve that tension? And I said, unhesitatingly, I said, I don't see attention there. If you protect the customers, then you will be protecting the brand inherently. And to kind of circle back to some of the things we were talking about at the beginning, if you are truly committed to doing the right thing for people, you have people that are committed to that, then that brings us back to one of those initial principles that I told you about, which is, you know, you tell people that something is bad. You be honest because, you know, even in this post-truth era, as some people call it, people still recognize honesty. People still recognize sincerity. The bulk of people will appreciate that. I'm a big proponent of the idea of trust, of building trust in security, of building trust in privacy, of vendors building trust with their customers, of researchers building trust with, with vendors. It's an important concept. And for me, it's utterly foundational for what I do. One thing that we were talking about before we hopped on the podcast is you do a lot of writing for yourself. Mm -hmm. You do a lot of writing for others. And you are actually in a philosophy book. Uh, the, why this stands out so much to me is because 
I'm a humanities major, uh, or I was when I was in college, and I probably have more philosophy classes than I did any other course subject matter in, in all of schooling. So I would love to hear that story. How did sure. that happen, and what was the subject matter? Sure. So I always joke that I'm, I'm well-placed to be in security because I was a comparative religion major in college. So, uh, wow. you know, so that, you know, that, that taught me, you know, that taught me the importance of evil, you know, <laughs> which applies in security. So I was a comparative religion major. I had uh, minors in history and anthropology, and I had an unofficial theater minor. And then I went on to get a uh, master's of humanities at St. John's in Annapolis. And I did my graduate thesis on uh, Nietzsche and his concept of nobility. So, you know, kind of coming, coming to your point, I'm, I'm, I'm a huge proponent of liberal arts and, and obviously, and, you know, and, and studying things that, that expand your, your thinking, that expand your point of view, that expand your ability to, to just look at things holistically. I'm sure I, I may get some grief, but I, I, I would rather in this space have someone with a history major than a computer science major, because the technical specifics, you can learn those. The thinking ability, the, the point of view that, that you get, I think is, is, is more important than, than whatever technical specifics you fill in at any point in time. I am published in a uh, book, it was called uh, Great Thinkers A through Z. I wrote the chapter on Nietzsche, you know, not, not surprising given what my thesis was on. And I find it is helpful in terms of being able to look at things creatively. It's also, it's also really helpful to be able to look at things from other people's points of view. You know, when we're talking about, for instance, vulnerability handling. So I've spent, a, I've spent a number of years on the vendor side dealing with security researchers, AKA hackers, you know, who find vulnerabilities. And I have always put myself in their position and try to make the back and forth as amicable and as smooth as possible. And part of that is, is again, putting myself in their, in, in their position. You know, I think to pivot a little bit, I think one thing that, that we see in the technology world that frankly, I'm disappointed has not improved is by and large, there continues to be a very hostile posture from vendors towards security researchers. And I think that does no one any good. Christopher, thank you so much for hopping on uh, the mics with us today. You know, from the bottom of our hearts, thank you sincerely. If people want to reach out to you and stay in touch with the things that you're doing, some of your writing, some of that stuff, what are some ways that people can do that? So I'm on uh, Twitter as uh, Christopher Budd, all one word. You can also find me at ChristopherBudd.com. i haven't updated the blog in a while, but but I am still there. I think I still have, on a very light note, do you watch Westworld? I do. I uh, Going back to my vulnerability handling days, at the end of season two, I, I, did, up a, uh, I did up a fake vulnerability report explaining how the uh, hosts in Westworld were gaining control of each other. <laughs> that's pretty cool. So that, that's up on the blog. But yes, you can find me on Twitter or at ChristopherBud.com. My email is unimaginatively Christopher at ChristopherBud.com. Awesome. Thanks again, Christopher. True pleasure to have you. And we'll make sure that we include all of the links and your email in the show notes. And we'll see everybody next time. Great. Thank you so much. <laughs>